0: listening to Venture Church podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. Let me paint a picture for you. Okay, it's Friday afternoon. Guys, you're just getting off work. All right, it's been a long week. It's Friday. This is this is your day. It's the day you've been waiting for because here comes your weekend. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, here it comes. I'm so punked about my weekend. And so my weekend comes, I walk to my car, my chariot. It might be like a 1984 Honda Civic, but it's still my chariot, right? And you climb in that thing, you're like, my weekend, my car, going to push preset number one on my radio, play my song, it's gonna be so awesome, and so you're like, "Here I am, g- g- rocking like a," or whatever, whatever you sing on the way home from work, and like you're just rocking out on the way home, and you just pump because this weekend you know your plan is to go to sit on your chair. You know that chair, your recliner, your couch, your 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 lawn chair, whatever it is, you're gonna sit in your living room, and you're gonna watch your show. Oh, it's gonna be so awesome, man! You're gonna hold your remote control because it's gonna be on your channel, and there's no reason. There is no reason. To, for anyone else to touch that thing, and, and whoever you live with, maybe, maybe you've got kids, maybe you've got a roommate, I don't know, but i got kids. I just imagine my kids are like, Daddy, can we please refresh your beverage?
1: <laughs> can, we,
0: can we order you a pizza? You know, and it's like, That's, that, this is my weekend. It's how it's going to go, right? Got it all planned out. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to you, someone else has plans. Because my wife is at home, and she has been home all day with the kids. My wife homeschools our kids. And all day long she's been, in fact, she's been all day, every day with our kids. And she's got plans because it's like 5 o'clock, Chris's supposed to be home any minute now. And she says, man, when he gets home, I got plans. I'm going to leave him here with the kids. I'm going to go to a quiet, secluded bookstore somewhere, get me a cup of coffee, my coffee, and sip it in quiet and peace and comfort. It's going to be wonderful. My wife has, she's got plans. Or maybe she doesn't want us to, to, to stay at the house. Maybe she wants us to leave the house because she wants to get it the way she wants it. And she's going to bake. My wife loves to bake. And there's going to be muffins and bread and cakes, all kinds of stuff, just, just baking. It's going to be a baked stravaganza. And she's going to be, and she's got it all planned out. And, and then she's even got the whole rest of the weekend planned out because at 6 a.m. tomorrow, we're all getting up to go to yard sales. Oh, it's going to be so fun. We're going to get up, and, we're going to, and it's going to be great. We're not going to buy anything. We're just there to look. But we've got to get up at 530 to get the good deals. And, right, and, so, and so she's got plans. We both have our weekends planned out. But meanwhile, there's these two little other people living in my house. they got plans too, Right? When dad gets home, whoo, we're going to play. We're going to wrestle. And my son's like, man, I got my skateboard by the door. We're going to go take our boards out to the park. We're going to ride the track. We're to ride longboards, And we're going to ride like nine miles. It's going to be great. And then when we get home, we're going to do it. We're going to put together a pickup basketball or uh, football game with the neighborhood kids. It's going to be awesome. Dad's going to coach and play quarterback for both teams. And he's going to be the referee. And when I fall on and skin my knee, it's cool because he's there. Got it all planned out. My daughter's got plans. Man, she's got a, the tea party set up. Dad, Dad's going to have a tea party with. With me. There's going to be 19 baby dolls, three of which are missing limbs. One's got that crazy eye that when you lay it down it's supposed to close its eyes, but now it just kind of one kind of flickers like this. You know what I mean? And like they've all got it planned out. The weekend is planned out. And we've all got these hopes and we've got this dream. What actually happens? 5.30, 6 o'clock, whatever it is at your house, rolls around, I pull into the driveway, I come into the house, and we collide in the kitchen for supper. Boom! Don't talk to your mama like that. I don't like beans. Go to your room. I'm gonna slap you in the face if you do that again. What I tell you, what? And back and forth, back and forth. If you cry again, I'll give you something to cry about. Right? All these things, right? And then everybody goes to their rooms, and, and you're sitting there. What happened to my weekend? I had plan. Is it just me, <laughs> or is that you too? Like you have these plans for life, or you have these plans for your family, or you have these plans for yourself, and. And that's what it turns out like. I want to draw you a picture if I can, because here's the deal. This, this week we're starting this series about family, and uh, I want to get started on the wrong feet, the, the right feet. You want to start on the right foot. And uh, and describe family. I think there's a couple different types of family you can describe. The first type is this. Um, what you got is like, uh, this is going to be my family. Chris and Lindsay sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. We did do that until we got married, though. And then... And then, you know, she's over here, she's got this awesome hairdo. And this is her. And at first comes love, then comes marriage, then this comes somebody with a baby carriage. I'm an equal opportunity parent. I don't care who pushes a baby carriage. But you've got, you know, we, we've got one of these, one of the boy kind, and then we've also got one of these. I like to draw with pigtails. Uh, the girl kind. And and um, so that that's our little family, and it's a perfect little family. It's awesome. And this is the picture of what, when we talk about family, it's what we kind of hope and wish happened. It's always like this, but, but family isn't always like this, is it? I mean, that's like my family that lives in my house, but even my family isn't like this. Because in addition to family, you've got over here, you've got like, you got your crazy Aunt Linda, you know? Like, she's there, and then you've got your Uncle Roscoe. He lives in a van down by the river, and you've got, you've got all these, you've got this one kid. He showed up for supper one night at your, um, he showed up for supper at your house, and you fed him. And then it was kind of like feeding a stray cat, like he just kept coming back. And now he's part of your family. His name's Jimmy, and he comes to Christmas. And it's, and it's this, is, this is what family's more like. And some families have the two parents, and some parents families have the one parent, and some families, it's kind of like Full House, back in the day on TV, there's like all kinds of dads, and they're raising all these kids. And, and all of that, all of that is family. In fact, what I want to say is that family kind of happens like this. F- family happens here. So this, this is me, okay? I'm represented by this dot. And my life was headed in this direction, okay? And then my wife, uh, Lindsay, her, her dot was over here, and her life was kind of headed in this direction. And right around here, we intersected. We intersected and take this in, okay? Where lives intersect, family happens. You hear that? Where lives intersect, family happens. And so at this moment where our lives intersect, we've got this and we've got, uh, I don't, you know, i got my parents, they kind of intersect, it's not quite right in the middle, but kind of off to the side there. And then we've got like her parents, and then we've had a couple of kids, and we've got cousins, and of course there's Uncle Roscoe in the van by the river, and and all these people that, and and right around here, right around here is where lives intersect, and here's the thing, when lives intersect, there's family, but also when, when lives intersect, there's the potential for problems. Am I right? Why? Well, because I was headed this way and, and she was headed this way and we intersected and it was great. Like there was, there was cake at the wedding and we've had like mortgages and stuff. That was, woo, it was great. Um, but then we still had an idea of where life should go. You see that? You see how the arrows go in different directions? Because what happens here is that when lives intersect, there's a potential for problems because we can't agree on where to go after this intersection. I'm calling it this morning a collision. It's a collision. But right here, this collision, this kaboom right here, let's label it. That's family. Like it or hate it, take it or leave it, that's family. That's what you got. That's what you got to deal with. That's what you got to live with. Um, now, this week we're beginning a new teaching series about just that, about family and uh, you know, managing that intersection of life. I, I want to make it clear today that this is not a lesson on the, the standard, stereotypical, uh, biological family. I know our group lo- well enough to know that there's all kinds of representations of family here. So please don't tune out anything that's said over the next three weeks if you're like, I don't really have family. You've got family. You, you've got family. If, if you've got a coworker, if you've got a neighbor, if you've got a best friend, if you've got uh, the, the dude that, you, that, that pumps your gas or like you see at the coffee house, and that's the closest thing you got to family. you got, you got this intersection, and God teaches us about managing this intersection of life, family. Um, if you're living and interacting with a group of people on a daily basis, you've got family. and Family can be crazy. When lives intersect, there's a potential for problem. I want to take a look now because Adventure Church, we're, we're passionate about this one thing. We want to look to the Bible for the answers to life's most important questions. And, um, well, here it is. This is my Bible. This is the one I read if it's not on my iPhone. I read a lot on my, my iPhone too, but this is like my hard copy Bible. And I brought it out this morning because I want to show you something about this, this book. Um, when you look at the Bible, I mean, you start to read it, I've read it through a couple times, and I'm reading right now, and I'm just, you look at it. Really, if you want to boil it down to what is this book, it's crazy, it just kind of hit me. The Bible is really the story of one family. If you know much about the Bible, sink that in, am I right? It's really the story of one family. If you don't know much about the Bible, let me tell you a little bit about it. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we're, it's, it's cool. We're going to have the uh, scriptures we're looking at up on the screen behind me. And if you don't own a Bible or if you need a new one for any reason, uh, we give them away here at the church. And so you might see one of the green ones that was under one of your chairs. Grab one of those, please. Take it as a gift. Uh, we just want to make sure people have good, readable, uh, modern versions of the Bible in their hands. But um, let's look at this story because this is really the story of one family's Journey, one family's life, and I will tell you one thing that's not true about this. This is not a perfect family. Did anybody ever watch the Simpsons, the TV show? You know, Bart and Simpson. Yeah, like that's the jacked up family. We're not talking about them. Who was the Simpsons' neighbors? The Flanders. How did anybody go was anybody a neighbor? You know, it's like that. That was Ned Flanders, and and he was the the stereotypical. Uh, I, I believe what people imagine Christian homes must be like. In fact, there are some that are kind of like the Flanders. And let me paint a picture of you for what the Flanders family was like. Uh, The Flanders Flanders family, like, I mean, first of all, Mr. Flanders, Ned always wore his sweater vest every day. And it was very important to him that he looked good and he played the part. Not only that, but they they were perfect. Everything had to be perfect. And they taught their kids perfection was the only way to go. In fact, uh, they, they would intentionally judge other people for not being as good as they were. There was an episode where they sent their kids to judging camp to learn how to judge people. Like and, so that's, and, and I think, I, I know, that's a caricature of what the writers of that show imagine Christian families are like. Um, we're going to look through this book, and, and we're going to look at Jesus' family tree, and here's the thing. It is not the Flanders. Jesus comes from a highly dysfunctional family, to say the least. I want to take a second, if I can, just to scan through some of the stories in, in the Bible. When you look in the very first book of the Bible, it's called Genesis. Genesis is a book the word that means beginnings, uh, or in the beginning. And, uh, and, and so the very first family that we meet in the Bible, it, mom and dad are Adam and Eve, okay? So no matter what you believe about the Bible or about God, you, you at least understand that people believe about Adam and Eve. Very first family in the Bible. Um, they got these two kids, Cain and Abel. They have a disagreement, and, and, and Cain gets jealous of something that happens with Abel. And What happens? He kills his brother. Murder. First family, murder. They ruined it for the rest of us. Dysfunctional family. And from that spawns generations of more and more increasingly dysfunctional families. Now, I could go generation by generation and show you the dysfunction. I'm not going to do that. We don't have the time. You don't want to sit and listen to it. But I want to highlight a few of the prominent first families in the Bible. Let's, we're going to fast forward a few generations to a guy named Abraham. We just spent a month talking about Abraham in our series, A Life Worth Watching. You remember that? So this is the life of Abraham. Let me tell you Abraham's story. It's pretty cool. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to give you a son, and that son's going to change the world, right? Well, in the process of waiting for that son to come, one story, there's several actually, Abraham is on a journey, and, and he's traveling through this, through this foreign land. And apparently, first of all, you got to know, apparently Abraham's wife, Sarah, was pretty hot. Like, she was a good-looking lady. She was pretty hot, and apparently it was also the custom of kings to steal the wives of foreigners when they came, especially the hot wives of foreigners, when they came into their land, right? And so there comes this time where Abraham enters into this foreign kingdom, and and he's got a feeling that the king's going to try to take his wife. And so he looks at his wife, Sarah, and he says, Sarah, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to lie and say that you're my sister. Can we, like... In hindsight, especially if you know that story, you're like, that's not a big deal. I mean, he, just, he didn't want to get in trouble. But how many guys, how many of you would say to your wife, you walk into a restaurant or wherever you're going and say, listen, honey, um, I don't want anyone to know that you're my wife. Will you just tell them you're my sister? That's dysfunctional. That's messed up. Like, you need counseling. Don't do that, guys. Okay, so he does that. And then the king does come and tries to take his wife. And he's like, just go with him. Just go with him. Go Go be with the king. Fill in the blanks. Be with. Like, that's... That's dysfunctional, and, so that, and, and, and that blows up in their face, and, and they get kicked out of the kingdom, and that's just a mess. You can read the whole story in Genesis, but, and it moves on. Eventually, God uh, still hasn't shown up with his son yet that they promised them, and so Abraham's getting impatient. He's talking to his wife. Listen, you're not getting uh, pregnant, and things just aren't really working, and she's like, I know, I know. I got an idea, and if you know the story, you know he, she says, uh, well, I've got this maidservant named Hagar. Why don't you just see if you can make a baby with her? Ladies, how many of you would be the first to jump in line to offer that to your, your man? No. That's messed up. That's dysfunctional. But that's what happens when a baby's born, and, and that's a whole mess. That whole side of the family, just, it's a, just a mess. It continues, and it continues throughout that family. So they do have a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac grows up. He gets married. Let me tell you about Isaac. Oh, goodness. Isaac, he, he, uh, he moves off. Uh, and uh, Well, first of all, Isaac has, has two kids, uh, these twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob is, is this little, he's the youngest, Esau's the oldest, and he's like this little conniving schemer. And he decides that he is going to come in and try to, Esau, as the oldest son, has the rights of an oldest son, which in their culture was a big deal. It was birthright is what they called it. Jacob comes into Esau and plays a prank on him and steals his brother's birthright and gets him to trade him his birthright for a bowl of soup. That's just weird. I don't know how you even agree to that. But like, yeah, bowl of soup, sure, I'll give you my birthright. Must be some good soup. But he gives it up. And then not only that, he wants to make sure the deal's complete, so now he's got to trick his dad. So he walks into his dad, Isaac, who's now an old man, and he walks in and he says, listen, I, um, he, he disguises himself as his brother Esau. This is Jacob, the younger brother. He walks into his dad's tent and he disguises his, bro- his, as his brother and his dad has lost the better part of his senses. And he's like, who is that? And he's like, it's Esau, Dad. Wow, you sound like Jacob, but, and he's got Esau's clothes on. You smell like Esau, and you feel like Esau. And and, and he gives Jacob Esau's blessing, which is a big deal in their day. I mean, we would think in our modern times, like, why don't you just take it back? I take it back. But back in those days, man, when you gave someone a blessing, it it was for keeps. It was a big deal, and I don't know how Jacob saw this playing out in his life, but immediately after he steals the birthright, he flees the country, he gets out of there because he's so afraid of what his brother might do to him. Dysfunctional family, messed up. The story goes on and on. I could tell you about how Jacob goes out and finds a wife, and man, when he gets to this place where he finds this wife, uh, he's really, he's really uh, excited about this one wife named Rachel, but like... Her dad's like, he pushes a hard bargain, so he sets up this arranged marriage. And he's like, listen, I will work for you in your fields for seven years for the hand of your daughter, Rachel, in marriage. And so she's like, and the dad's like, yeah, that's fine. You can work for seven years. So he works seven long years. Seven years, guys. Some of, you, some of you couldn't wait like a week before you wanted to cross a new line and go around a different base of the baseball field with the girl that you ended up marrying or not, right? This dude's waiting seven years. So seven years comes and goes. And it's their wedding night, and, uh, and there's a ceremony, and then they go to be kind of in their honeymoon suite. And it, in the dark of night, the girl's dads switch sisters, switch sisters. So Rachel's not actually there with Jacob, it's actually her, other, her sister. And, and, and so they consummate the marriage that night. Can you imagine waking up the next morning? And the girl that you thought you married is not even in the room. It's her sister. Awkward. Hey! Wow! And he is mad, and he goes to the dad, and he's like, "Dad, what in the world did you do? You switched it! You, you ah, dysfunctional family!" And he does work it out. He works seven more years to get the hand of the girl that he eventually wanted to marry. Dysfunctional family, and again, I could go generation by generation. I could talk about their kids, who eventually there's twelve sons. Eleven of them don't like one of them named Joseph, and they fake his death, pretend like he got eaten by a wild beast, and they sell him into slavery you like, maybe you didn't like your little brother, or your little sister, but how many of you would fake their death and sell them into slavery? That's a big deal. Dysfunctional family. And we look at this and we go, wait a second. This is Jesus' family tree? Jesus. Like, like died on a cross and wears a halo all the time, Jesus? Like that guy? This is his family? This is what I've learned about God. God specializes. Listen, hear me. If you don't hear anything else, I say this more. Hear me. God specializes in using messed up people for his purpose. Amen. I mean, he will take your broken down, messed up life, and he will redeem it, and he will use it for good, for his purposes. And when you look at Jesus' family tree, and you see what eventually comes out of that, man, it's amazing. You flip through the Bible, and, and you might think, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Their life was messed up. And I do, I get it. My, my, my life's messed up. I, gotta, I don't have a perfect family. We've got skeletons in our closet. We've got secrets that we wish people didn't know about. We've got mysterious moments that people kind of, what, what happened there, right? And I don't even have to tell you my story. You know why? Because you know your story. You know, you know, you know what's messed up in your family. You know the stuff people try to hide. and You know, maybe you got some serious issues that you never told anyone. Maybe your dysfunction happened privately, and it's a secret. Maybe your dysfunction happened very publicly, and it's everybody knows. Maybe there's literally an article in a newspaper written about something that happened in your family. But I want to let you know something. There's hope. There's hope because God specializes in using messed up people for his purpose. And he can take your broken family and he can take wherever you are in this place where lives intersect, and he can turn it around and use it for his glory. Uh, if you do have a Bible with you today, I want to encourage you to uh, turn to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Bible. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All five of those books are written by a guy named Moses. At least that's what most scholars believe. And so uh, this guy Moses, and, and, and the Jews consider these first five books of the Bible, they call them the Pentateuch. Here, hear it, Penta, like five? Tuch means law. These are the five books of law. You've also got... Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, it's a word that means the second book of, of law, kind of. And so when we find ourselves in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible, we're in a piece of law that was laid down for the Jewish nation to live by. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to read this passage with you and, uh, and unpack how this can help us grow stronger families. All right? Deuteronomy 6 is going to be 4 through 9. And it says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk down the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and of your gate. Can we go back to the first verse there, um, the first half? And I want to teach you guys a word. Uh, the word, you want to learn some Hebrew this morning? All right, the word is Shema. Say Shema. Shema. Say, Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. That was good. I feel like a rabbi now. Um, Shabai, Shema Yisrael. Th- these are the first two Hebrew words of this, this passage. Shema is a word that means listen up or hear or kind of like hear ye, hear ye or pay attention. Right? Shema. Hear Yisrael. Israel. Hear, O Israel. Shema Yisrael is, is a, it, it became when the early Jewish rabbis uh, were reading this verse, they said, This is important. This is a very important piece of scripture, a very important commandment. We have got to internalize this. So they developed something that's become known as the Shema. Say the Shema. All right, so the Shema. Now, the Shema is this thing, the early uh, rabbis, and um, you can go ahead and skip ahead to the... The word Shema on the screen. Um, The word uh, Shema became kind of synonymous with this prayer. Uh, Jewish people would, would often recite this prayer two times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Right, and this is this is the Shema. This is the prayer. Two times a day, they would pray this. In fact, modern day Jews today will even still pray this. I encourage Christians to pray this. In fact, I'll even go on to say that this is why, uh, as a, as a church, we kind of have like these this three part goal as a church: will be uh, God chasers and love and grace shaped and love agents. And that whole idea, of God chasers, comes from this: L- love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. It's, it's, it's that love agent thing. It's Shema. It's Shema. And so these these Jewish Teachers taught this, and it became a tradition, and the prayer was pretty simple. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And what I want to show you today is how this prayer, the Shema, can dramatically refocus and strengthen your family. In fact, any relationship, but particularly family, because that's where life intersects. Um, I want to talk for a second about the Shema, because the Shema was such a big deal in Jesus' day. Jesus was constantly getting kind of uh, pinned up against the wall by religious leaders. Uh, they, they saw him as a threat, many of them. Some of them thought that he was a false teacher. Some of them just didn't like him. Maybe he had a cooler beard than them. I don't know. Um, but he, just, he, he was constantly at odds with these teachers. And the teachers would come up and they would challenge him with, with these deep questions about the Bible. If you remember, Jesus is God who became a man, right? And so it's kind of strange that these people would challenge God on Bible trivia, But they did. And so one particular time they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, tell us, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the greatest commandment? Which means look through all the Bible, that first five books of the Bible I just told you about, what's the greatest thing in there? They were trying to pin him to the wall because if he said, well, the greatest thing is, you know, this, they'd say, oh, yeah, well, what about this? Oh, well, what I meant to say was this. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Jesus didn't skip a beat. This, This may have been a prayer he said since he was a kid. He went directly to Shema. They said, what's the greatest commandment? He goes, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And then Jesus is always about bonus points. So he's like, eh, and the second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. He said all of the other commandments hang on Shema. All of them. Anything else that God wants from us can hang on the central focal point of, do you love God with all your heart? And are you loving people? Shema. It's very important to Jesus, and I think it should be very important for us today. Let's break this verse down a little bit. We're going to get through it uh, pretty quick now. Uh, let's look at Deuteronomy six, just verse six, um, and it says this: These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. This is like this follows up the Shema prayer. If you miss this, you're missing the boat. You're missing the boat entirely. The commandments that God gives has to be on our hearts. has to be something that we internalize, that's so important important to us, that we write it on our our hearts so that God's love can overflow to the world around us. It's central to who we are. So he says these commandments that I tell you today, write them on your hearts. And then it continues in verse 7. He says this, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Let me just leave that up there for a minute. Impress them on your children. I, I don't know what type of impressions you've gotten about God. What, what impressions do you have of God? I mean, it could be a wide variety. I've gotten lots of impressions of God. I get impressions of God from his people. I get impressions of God from, from the Bible. I get impressions of God when I hear people teach about God. I get impressions of God from you know when I, when I try to pray or when I try to experience nature. Like all these things give me impressions of God. But as a kid, you know one of the biggest impressions I had about God? Maybe this is the same impression you had. Apparently, God, it was really important to God that I dress very fancy on Sundays. That was very important to God. It was also very important to God that, that I wear uncomfortable shoes. I'm seven years old or whatever. That was my impression of God. I, didn't, I, I didn't, couldn't comprehend a lot of the other things, but one of the things that was deeply impressed on me, the question is why? Why was that impressed upon me? Why did I believe that was so important? I guarantee you this is why. I mean, I could, if my parents were on stage, they would agree. Because it was impressed upon them. That it was very important to dress very nice and go to church on Sunday and wear uncomfortable shoes. It wasn't a criteria to wear uncomfortable shoes. It just so happened that the nice ones that we could afford were uncomfortable. Um, That was the impression I got about God. And what are your impressions about God? Here's the thing. The impressions we have about God are the impressions we will leave on other people about God. Namely, that he's very important or that he's not very important. That's pretty much the biggest two impressions you can have about God. And so this verse says, impress them on your children. Impress these, these commandments of God Now, I realize not everyone in this room has children. Some of you have no plans of having children. This is not a verse written to parents. I mean, it, it, it is in context. It is the way that it's written. But the principle here can be applied across the board. Maybe you don't have children to impress the things of God upon. But are there people in your life that you can make impressions on? Yeah. So if you need to replace that right now while you don't have kids, impress these things upon your coworkers. Talk about them as you walk down the road, when you sit down, when you stand up, when you lay down. Talk, impress these things on, the, on, on your boyfriend and your girlfriend. Talk about them when you walk down the road. Talk, impress these things on your neighbors. It should be so well written on our hearts that when people interact with us, when our lives intersect, we impress upon them what we believe about God. I gotta give my dad props. They they did make me wear uncomfortable shoes, um, but my dad did a pretty good job. I saw this in my dad. He modeled it. I was a kid of a million questions, uh, a million questions, and my son is a chip off the old block, like a million questions. And there's just so many things to ask. And some, and, and my this is like about half of you in this room. I grew up without the internet. Like some of you are like what? But the rest of us like yeah. There was a time when you actually had to write letters with your hands. Like and so it was. I remember there was no Google. There was no Wikipedia. What I had was road trips with my dad to ask him any questions that were on my little heart. And I would just chew his ear off talking about, why is this, why is this guy blue? And my dad was all My dad's a smart guy. He was awesome. He entertained every single question that I had about life and about God. But this was cool. Like, God, God really used my dad to impress upon me some truths. And so one of these... For example, I was, I was a boy, I was all boy, and I was really curious about war and armies and stuff like that. So I was curious about world history, and so I'm like, Dad, tell me about World War II. And he'd be telling me all about the battles and the wars and everything. But in that moment, he impressed upon me some of the heart of God. For example, yeah, yeah, this was the battle, this is what went down. And I'd be like, cool, were there big cannons, they blow each other up? Yeah, but buddy, you know, fighting is just not always the best way to deal with our problems. You know, we should love people. There's, there's better ways, more peaceful ways. What did my dad do there? He didn't preach me a sermon. He was talking about it while we walked down the road, when we lay down, when we stood up. He impressed upon me some of the value of God just through answering some of my questions. Or we'd be sitting in a baseball game and the sun would be setting and over the bleachers. And he would just take a second and say, hey, buddy, check it out. Man, God does good work, doesn't he? That's beautiful. What did he do? He impressed upon my heart what he felt about God. And it went on through life. As I'm thinking about college choices and jobs and things, and he would listen to what I had to say, but then he'd ask me hard questions like, well, bud, that's great, but I just want to challenge you. How is this going to help you to serve God? Right? He's not being an overlording father that's dragging me to church, kicking and screaming. Sometimes our idea of impress this upon your children is, if you're living under my roof, you're going to church. And maybe that's the rules you have to make because sometimes kids are difficult. (laughs) But the best way that you can impress the love of God on your your kids or the people around you is simply talk about it while you walk down the road, when you lay down, and when you sit up. Make it important. Inscribe these things on your heart so that they are so valuable to what's going on. It, we, we say we're church for people who don't like church. And it might be that you came this morning because you wanted to challenge that and see, like, what's that all about. And so um, I'm not going to call you out because that's awkward. You don't want that. But I, I, ju- I do, I do want to say this to you if you're here this morning and you're like, I, I have questions about God. I don't want to impress none of this mess on anybody because I don't even think it's real. I think it's hogwash. I get that. I understand. Uh, my, my, my challenge for you, if, if you're just struggling with God and truth and maybe don't even know what to impress on people, um, here, here's my challenge for you. Stick around. Stick around here. Come back a couple more weeks and see what impressions you get from the people in this room. See if the people, and this is a challenge to the rest of us, what impressions do we leave people when they come to visit us as a church? What impressions do they have when they have coffee and lunch with you? So stick around. Stick around and see if if it's something that you want. I'm pretty sure because I've seen it happen over and over again. You'll want some of that. You'll want it, and, and so come, come give it a try for a couple more weeks. Um, so impress it on your children, or if you don't have kids, impress it on the people in your life, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family, whatever. So then the verse wraps up, okay? So we're going to move on now to verse 8. And this is crazy. This is the weirdest thing. It says, tie them, these commandments, these rules, these, these thoughts, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates what is, what is this about? This is weird. This is like the weirdest thing. Like, is this, should I, should I literally write down scripture and tie it to my forehead? Well, some people took it very literally. In the Bible, they actually had these little boxes called phylacteries. And they had these boxes and some of the really uh, devote, devout Jewish leaders would strap these boxes to their heads, and they put Bible verses inside the box, and it was a way that they could remember God's words. So they pull it out, they'd read it. It became kind of a thing where they'd show off, like whoever's got the biggest box on their forehead. It's like the, That's a true story. And, and they would be the, the best God followers or whatever. Um, but 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 I don't know if this is exactly the way to do it. Like, I think that would actually be a really great way to punish your kids. Like, if you talk back to me again, I am going to make you go to school with Bible verses strapped to your forehead. Like, I don't know. But... Maybe there's some other ways to do this. I talked about my dad. Let me talk about my mom a little bit. My mom, um, my parents, they weren't perfect. They will be the first ones to admit it. But one of the things my mom did that impressed upon me the truth of God was was this thing. um, Writing it on our foreheads and posting it on our door frames. Except she didn't use that stuff. She used post-it notes. You might notice that our little logo for the sermon series is a post-it note on Aaron's forehead. Um, That is Aaron if you were wondering who that is. Um, And uh, she used post-it notes. Like she would just everywhere put these post-it notes of Bible verses, and from a young age, I can remember these things. I mean, strategic places on the bathroom mirror, on the uh, the, the refrigerator door, uh, in my room, somewhere strategic. You know, somewhere right right where we could see them. And, and, um, and let me tell you, I gotta tell you, I, I've seen these post-it notes all over my house throughout my childhood, and it worked. Let me give you an example. Check this out, right from the top of my head. Okay, love the Lord your God. With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's what I'm preaching on today. Learn that from a post-it note. Another one. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understandings, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. I didn't learn that at vacation Bible school or seminary. Post-it note. It was on a post-it note in my bathroom mirror for a long time. Uh, Another one. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Uh, It says... um, We urge you, brothers, therefore, in view of God's great mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, because this is your spiritual act of worship. Listen to this. This It's my favorite part of this verse. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Post-it note. I learned that off of a post-it note, and it has guided me so often as I think through decisions. And so I think when Moses writes, bind them to your foreheads, write them on your arms, write them over the door frames of your house and on the gates into your yard, what he's saying is make this stuff visible for your family to see. Parents, do you read your Bible? Do your kids know that? Let them see you reading your Bible, or tell them what you're reading today. Friends of friends, that you do, do, people, do people know what you believe? You don't have to wear like any kind of corny t-shirt with like a, you know, switching the brand name and it throws in, like they call it witness wear, and it's like Christian t-shirts. You don't have to do that, but you can. But, but you don't have to do that. The question is, is it visible around you? Are you filling your mind with it all the time? For my mom... It was post-it notes. It was kind of funny because sometimes I think she would put up uh, new Bible verses. Oddly enough, at the same time when we were having some kind of conflict, like we'd have like some big blowout argument, and then there'd be magically a post-it note that said, children, obey your parents and the Lord. <laughs> and I'd be like, Mom, come on, you know, going to spank me with the Bible. All right, so, so here, here's what we come down to. Let me get you a new sheet, and we're going to wrap up today. The question I have for you today is what does your family rally around? What is your family rally around? When you look at my family, um, it could be a lot of different things. Like um, my family, we're, we're big Dallas Cowboys fans, right? It's no secret. I talk about it all the time. Uh, for you, it might be sports. You know, it might be just, you know, we get together and we talk about sports. And so my, this intersection right here, the way it happens best, family, is through sports. Does that make sense? Maybe for you, it's food. Like, you know what? I don't really like to hang out with my family. But my grandma, she makes the best potato, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to go eat it with everybody. And so you, so you, the place where your family intersects is around food. Maybe for you it's entertainment. And it's just like, I, I don't know, we, we go to ball games, we go to movies, we talk about books, we talk about pop culture. And that's what my family can get around. Maybe for you, the only thing your family can agree on is biology. Like, as in, um, well, we're related, so <laughs> it's Christmas, so... I guess we should hang out. Here's a can of WD-40. Merry Christmas. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's the only thing your family can agree on. And I'm going to tell you what happens when we agree, when we rally around. Some of these things are great. Entertainment, sports, food, whatever. these These things are good things. They're not bad things in and of themselves. But if that is what we rally around, let me tell you something. It is not innately of God. It is not God. And if we're rallying around all these other things, this is what happens. We come into the circle, focused on food, but then we go out of the circle in a different direction. Collision, explosion, family, messed up. If all we do is get around and talk about entertainment, it's awesome for the few minutes that we're in that zone and we're talking about that thing that we talk about, but then, boom, it's over. So I want to offer you something different. I want to offer you a plan that I think will work. What if at the center of your family... Could be Shema. And what if you come right here and this is you and you're like, you know what? I don't even really get around, get along with the other people in my family, but this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna love God with all my heart and all my strength, all my soul. I'm gonna enter the intersection with that in mind. Now, you might be the only person in your family doing that, but it'll still make a difference. But what if more than one person in your family? Some of you are right here with your spouses and your kids and your neighbors and your, your family unit right now. And you could, you could agree, you know you know what? Let's head, let's head into this intersection with the same thing in mind. Shema, Shema. And I'm going to work it out. We're going to talk about it while we walk down the road. We're going to talk about it as we lay down and as we sit up. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to press it on each other. We're going to bind it to our foreheads. We're going to put up post-it notes. We're going to put encouraging things to each other in text messages. Scripture. God's word. And here's the thing. This is what will happen. When this collision happens, instead of this guy going that way and this girl going that way and this kid going that way and and Jimmy down the road going this way, when they leave the intersection, this is what happens. You can now leave with a united purpose. All together on the same page. Shema. I want to address one quick thing before we close out. It's this. You might be in a place where you're the only person in your family unit in the room right now. And you're looking at this and going like, that, that's real great. That's awesome. Thanks for making me feel terrible. Because my family's not going to rally around Shema. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Do it yourself. Just yourself. Begin to impress that upon the people in your family. And see if one domino doesn't knock over the other one. And that there's not a chain reaction that leads to a family united in purpose. Because God specializes in using messed up people for his purpose. Can I pray for you today? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the time you've given us to share uh, in your word. It's uh, so cool to see how you took the dysfunctional family of, of Abrahams and you used it for your glory. Um, Father, I pray that we can rally around Shema, that as we continue this teaching series, we can get to a place where we say, uh, I am going to stand up right now and say that as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. I pray for this room right now, the decisions that are having to be made, and I just ask that as we move forward in this this session and wrap up today, that you can be at the center of our hearts, that we can bind you to our foreheads and right on our doorposts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.